Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Bruce Kuklick, the author of Fascism Comes to America, A Century of Obsession in Politics and Culture. The term fascist has been thrown around in American politics and culture for much of the 20th and 21st century. It is a popular epithet that is used to brand all kinds of political opponents from left to right. But what does the term mean? How is it used? How did it show up in American history and culture with the rise of fascist regimes in Europe before World War II? Why has its use persisted even as those regimes were defeated? And why has the why has fascism come to carry such negative connotations? In Fascism Comes to America, Bruce Kuklick explores the history of the use and meaning of fascism in American politics and culture for the past hundred years. Bruce Kuklick is the Nichols Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. He is most recently the author of Death in the Congo, Murdering Patrice Lumumba, written with Emmanuel Girard, and The Fighting Sullivans. Bruce Kuklick, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Tom. I'm happy, more than happy to be here. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Before we get into the substance of your book, I want to ask, what brought you to this project? That is to say... Why a study of fascism? Why today? Well, in one sense, that's really easy to answer. All you have to do is uh, look at any one of the cable news channels any night, and you will find that someone or another, someone or other in American politics has been being called a fascist. It's actually hard to escape uh, the prevalence of the use of this term uh, in the United States today. Uh, And I've always had, in addition to that, I've always had an interest in American diplomacy in uh, in the 1930s, the decade uh, which led to World War II and which is renowned, uh, not least because of the rise of uh, Mussolini and Hitler in Europe. So uh, it sort of just emerged that I sort of thinking about how or why the, the present use of fascism is related to what went on in the 1930s. Uh, and the result was uh, an increasing uh, interest in the problems of this book. And I guess the other thing is, which I hope we'll get into, uh, the entertainment industry stoked, uh, has stoked uh, for almost 100 years, Americans' fascination with fascism. Uh, and uh, I'm a great movie buff, and there are all these terrific movies which, in, in one way or another, uh, speak about the issues of fascism for an American audience. And I, I, I would be it be honest for me to say that my interest in uh, entertainment and especially the Holo- uh, the Hollywood movie uh, provoked me into writing this book. 
Okay. Uh, we will talk about some of those things. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to, you to read uh, from your book. Um, if we could start with really just the, the opening paragraph to chapter one, right there on page one, um, if you could read that for our listeners. Uh, actually, I love this paragraph. I've written, I wrote it uh, up uh, maybe and revised it 500 times. Google fascism comes <laughs> well, to America or search the topic on Amazon. Thousands of entries pop up. Reformers are fascists. Conservatives are fascists. Corporate business leaders are secret fascists. We find crypto, egalitarian, fastidious, modern, neo, and respectable fascist. Fascism can creep or be friendly or feel at home on Park Avenue. It can be sweet or mild and, and, uh, or even watery. During the 1930s, U.S. followers of the Russian communist Joseph Stalin called the communist adherents of Leon Trotsky social fascists. During the same decade, some citizens dreaded that fascists might declare themselves as anti-fascists. More certainly, the government later chastised other citizens for their pre premature anti-fascism. During the 1970s, the Black Panthers of Oakland, California, identified liberals as fascist pigs. But another Oakland-based organization, the Symbionese Liberation Army, announced the assassination of a black leader for his fascist plans for public school safety. Fascism has functional equivalents. Fascists often reemerge while some politicians count as fascistoid or fascist-like. Roosevelt's New Deal had fascist affinities, and so did the Reagan Revolution. The Jim Crow South evidenced fascism, but so did its opponents in the civil rights movements. Barack Obama was a fascist, but so was John McCain. Donald Trump was undoubtedly a fascism, a fascist. And on and on and on it goes. I mean, all you have to do is scratch the surface of this stuff, Tom, and you see that Americans are are obsessed with this notion. Yeah, it, it's kind of like a, an all-purpose political smear, isn't it? Yes. Well, that's, that's the argument that ultimately I make, although... I should say uh, to interested readers, I don't necessarily push my own thesis. What I was trying to do in the book was to lay out all of the ways in which uh, the phrase and its cognates were used and then ask the reader, what do you think? My own ideas, Bruce's ideas are these, but uh, think about it yourself because it's uh, an ongoing problem and issue, I think, in the United States. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about how how this how we how we got here. Uh, so the first chapter describes the origins of fascism, including its prehistory in the United States, and beyond the actual coinage of the term in interwar Italy, where did fascists come from, and, and how did Americans respond to what was an essentially a European idea? Well, it's quite interesting. Uh, Mussolini takes power uh, in Italy in the early 1920s. Uh, And at first, Americans 
see his uh, rise to leadership basically as a positive phenomenon. And it's, it's the people who were usually identified as American liberals, as progressives, who do this. Uh, because after the uh, after World War One and the retreat f- of from uh, Woodrow Wilson's internationalism, uh, conservative Republicans come to power in the United States, uh, and the liberals, when Mussolini takes over in Italy, think, "Gee, Mussolini is a lot like Teddy Roosevelt. That is, he's a nationalist." He believes uh, somehow in uh, a communal, more corporate form of government than Republican individualism in the United States allows. And so for these old time uh, Teddy Roosevelt progressives and also for Woodrow Wilson progressives, fascism as Mussolini exhibits it in the early 1920s is a positive development. And so throughout the 1920s, uh, fascism makes its entrance into the United States as a, uh, as a positive development in Europe, which in effect is copying uh, what, uh, what somebody like Teddy Roosevelt did in the United States. At the same time, uh, there are there's a little bit of withholding on the part of uh, Americans because they see that a kind of Mussolini's uh, nastier sort of uh, the nastier aspects of Mussolini's rule were appropriate for a backward country like Italy, and they certainly aren't appropriate to the United States. So while fascism is positive has a positive connotation, it's, there's always a little bit of withholding on the part of American intellectuals uh, who see it really as, uh, as something that uh, is more, uh, more reasonable for a primitive country like Italy. Uh, what they want is for is for people like Mussolini to follow the more positive aspects of Teddy Roosevelt's set of ideas. Then, and this is when the big the big crunch comes uh, during the Depression, uh, when the, the world economy collapses in twenty nine thirty, uh, and uh, the problems of, of employment are uh, are the most serious issues for Americans for the next 10 years. And then, and most people don't uh, remember this or know this, but uh, Adolf Hitler's regime came to power uh, at the same time as Franklin Roosevelt's. And Hitler's regime is, is so mean-spirited and nasty, uh, as we all know, especially its racial policies, that, uh, as I put it in the book, Hitler taints Mussolini. They're both regarded as, uh, as similar kinds of regimes, but all of the, uh, the good qualities that people thought uh, that uh, Mussolini's fascism have are submerged when, when people see the Germans exhibiting uh, what they came to see as the true outcome of uh, of 
of Mussolini. So from the mid-1930s on, the, the connotation, connotation of fascism in the United States changes and becomes entirely negative. And then it becomes uh, a very useful word, as you put it, to smear uh, anybody that you don't like. Uh, and the best example of this, I think, is, is what happens to Franklin Roosevelt in the New Deal. It immediately, by Roosevelt takes power uh, in early 1933, uh, and within a year, all of his political opponents are, are, are calling Roosevelt a fascist. Uh, Roosevelt doesn't take this sitting down, uh, and immediately uh, the Democratic administration and, and his followers call their opponents fascist. So right from the start, in American English, in American politics, fascism becomes uh, a label which you can use to tar anyone whom you don't like. Um, so one of, and, and we've already mentioned this before, but one of the great pleasures of your book is the way you explore how the term fascism and, and kind of the ideas associated with it migrate across different cultural realms. So fascism is at once a, a political idea, a political ideology, and it's also one that manifests itself in popular culture. So tell us a little about what happens when the term moves between these different cultural areas. Uh, well, this is a topic which I really love to talk about. Uh, and I think it all starts uh, with Groucho Marx, not uh, Karl Marx, whom you might think of as a, a great critic of, uh, or would have been a great critic of uh, Hitler and Mussolini, but with, with Groucho. Mm -hmm. And in 1933, when I hear when I hear Marx, I always go to Groucho first. Yes. Uh, well, in 1933, uh, Groucho made uh, the the last of of these terrific uh, fun movies that he made in the uh, in the beginning of the sound era of uh, motion pictures. A film called Duck Soup, and Duck Soup is about a sort of uh, lunatic. Uh, leader of a small country uh, called Fredonia, which has a historical background identical to the United States. And its leader uh, is a guy named Rufus T. Firefly, played, of course, by Groucho Marx. And uh, he decides to go to war against an opposing uh, country because uh, its leading diplomat uh, has... Uh, tried to muscle in on Groucho's girlfriend. So the country goes to war uh, over this, uh, over the issue of uh, who has, uh, who has claimed to uh, this, this woman whom Groucho likes. Uh, the film was banned in Italy. It was released uh, on the 10th anniversary of Mussolini's rule, that is in 32. That is, it's just at the time when fascism is being tainted by the rise of, of Hitler. Uh, and what one finds is that to the extent that 
ordinary Americans had an understanding of fascism. It derived not so much from the discussion, certainly not from the discussion of academics, uh, and but and not even so much from the discussion of politicians, although that's certainly important. Rather, ordinary Americans got their uh, their understanding of of these things from the world of entertainment. And it's just amazing to see the response uh, of uh, of the the folks in Hollywood to. Uh, to uh, national political issues. Uh, they make, there are a lot of serious movies, serious anti-fascist films that are made. Uh, but the ones that strike me as most interesting and the ones that penetrate most deeply into popular culture is this genre which uh, Groucho Marx uh, begins, which I call the farce of fascism. And it is the most fascinating aspect of the use of fascism and its cognates uh, that I found, because here you have the most horrible, Hitler's regime is the most horrible regime in the history of the planet, yet somehow, and for some reason, uh, the entertainment industry and particularly Hollywood finds it uh, finds a way to make a joke out of it um, and so you have uh, Groucho Marx's duck soup followed for example by uh, by uh, Charlie Chaplin's the great dictator uh, followed by dr. Strangelove in the uh, in the night in the early 1960s uh followed by uh my one of my favorite films of all time the zero mostel film uh the producers uh here you have uh, this gets us maybe a little ahead of where you want to be but i love this story the producers uh is a movie about a uh, a broadway play that uh, that the two producers of it have uh, brought to a Broadway designed to f- uh, in a way that's designed to fail, and there's a kind of sort of complicated story of why they want to produce uh, a show on Broadway that's that that's going to uh, to to flame out. But the show they do is called Springtime for Hitler. Now, you have to think, and this is 1967, in the middle of the Vietnam War, the high period of protests, where uh, the, uh, the president of the United States at the time, Lyndon Johnson, and the people around him are calling all of the demonstrators against the war in Vietnam uh, student fascists. And the kids who are protesting are calling the the political leaders fascists. Uh, a very, very uh, precarious time in the history of the Republic where you have uh, these uh, 
labels traded back and forth with an angry denunciation, you know, uh, marches on the Pentagon, uh, all sorts of disruption to, to normal activities. Very serious time. And yet, here the producers becomes a smash, a smash uh, movie hit. And what it does is... is uh, show the way in which uh, the, the two Broadway producers put on a Broadway play called Springtime for Hitler, in which the lead song goes, Springtime for Hitler in Germany, uh, Winter for Poland and France, uh, Deutschland needs a great leader. And uh, if you watch the movie, you can see a huge banner of Adolf Hitler come down in the middle of your uh, screen and uh, uh, cannons shooting off uh, into the audience. Uh, these uh, pieces, these artillery shells. I mean, it's amazing. And what, what, the farce of fascism means and how it uh, reflects what's going on in American culture is a conundrum that I don't completely understand. But the phenomenon requires some description and some uh, looking over if you're at all interested in uh, American cultural history. Yeah, it's uh, the the film. The film, as you said, is absolutely fascinating. Um, and even the the remake that appeared a couple of decades later. So uh, I want to talk, though. I mean, as a as a myself, a scholar of communication and and rhetoric, um, your third chapter is especially interesting. And so I want you to um, talk a little bit about what is meant by the phrase "the map is not the territory." And, and what does that axiom have to do with the study of fascism? Wait, let me see. You're asking me a hard question here. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, you, uh, you're, you were asking about uh, uh, all of the Korzybski uh, and uh, yeah, uh, the general semantics movement. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting issue, actually. Uh, in the 1930s. Uh, a whole movement grew up which was uh, connected to, uh, a, 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 well, the, ri the, uh, the rise of what was called logical positivism in, uh, in Germany and then in England. And this is a philosophical movement which was centered around the uses of language. And the argument was that we had two very distinct uses of language. One was uh, fact-stating scientific language. The other was uh, a different sort of uh, use of language, which was, uh, in their terms, usually called emotivism. The use of language not to describe something or state a fact or to make a scientific theory, but rather to... Uh, to, to arouse people's emotions, uh, to get them to do something uh, so that you had evaluative uh, language as opposed to descriptive. Uh, I am still very partial to this theory, but one of the things that happened in the, when, when these views got translated 
into uh, the United States, they became the possession not just of scholars and philosophy departments in the United States, but to a whole crew of people called semanticists, some of whom were big supporters of uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the Democratic administration. And what they did was quite interesting because uh, what they said, they took all of their political opponents, that is the Republican conservatives who were opposed to, uh, to Franklin Roosevelt and said, hey, you guys are using, misusing language. When you say Roosevelt is a fascist, uh, what you're doing is emoting. What you're trying to do is persuade people of certain things that aren't true. Uh, your language fails. Your language uh, uh, is uh, unfortunate and uh, inaccurate. You're, you're making a fund. They basically reduced the Republican politics to making a, what they thought was an elementary philosophical error to confuse fact stating language with emotional language. Uh, it's a very, I, it's interesting that you, you find that uh, a fascinating movement. I did also, but I also think that it, uh, it was a uh, a way of labeling and castigating your opponents, which probably didn't have much bite uh, with the general population. Although there is, if you've uh, since you you've, you've read this carefully, time Tom, there's uh, one very interesting uh, book uh, in which the the author. Uh, does a sampling of uh, of the of the uh, of people in the United States? Actually, he did it up in Connecticut, where I, I he lived, uh, and he found uh, that asking people what fascist meant that he found like twenty different uh, varieties of definition, none of which uh, some of which didn't overlap, some of which were completely opposed to one another, uh, but which he uh, thought corroborated his ideas that the Republicans were, were misusing the term. Then, of course, all of these guys said they could properly use the term. Uh, and if you were a, a good Democrat uh, semanticist, you found that uh, all the Republicans were really fascist, uh, that you could find a cognitive core to, to what fascism meant. And with that, you were able to describe uh, scientifically your opponents of fascism. So here I find uh, another example of people, uh, I don't want to say being confused, but certainly unable to prevent themselves from uh, the allure of using this term to castigate your opponents. It became the way, it, by then it was the way that you had of, 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 of making the worst of anybody you opposed, Tom. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, that, that worst of anyone you oppose. So, um, I'm talking to you uh, not far from uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, and the Shrine of the Little 
Flower Parish. Oh, really? Um, and in the second, yeah. It, so in the fifth chapter, you you're, we start to get up into the U.S. entry into World War II. And m- my students are frequently surprised to find that this was as fraught a decision um, as, as it, you know, in retrospect, shouldn't have been, right? Uh, so tell us a little bit about the America Firsters. And of course, I'm especially interested to learn about uh, Father Charles Coughlin. Yeah. Gee, this is interesting. And I, you, you might not uh, agree with me about this, but I am much more sympathetic to the uh, what was called at the time the American First Movement than most people are today. That is to say, there were genuine political issues surrounding uh, the decision by the United States under Franklin Roosevelt to go to war against the Germans which he, uh, and the Japanese, which he finally did in 1941. In the lead up to the decision of the Roosevelt administration, uh, there was a lot of concern about the, uh, the justifiability of the United States entering the war in uh, entering European problems again. And this is a, a fraught set of issues. We had entered uh, World War One in 1917, 1918 to straighten out uh, European troubles. Uh, 20 years later, Europe, uh, less than 20 years later, Europe was back in the soup with the British and French on the one hand, uh, Against the against the Italians and the Germans, with the the Russian communists uh, in the uh, in the in the far east, uh, complicating matters by switching from one side to the other. In this during this period, the Roosevelt administration is absolutely determined, I think, to finally to get the United States. Uh, on the side of the British and French. Uh, Roosevelt, and I entirely agree with you uh, about this, uh, ultimately thought that Hitler and Hitlerism was just uh, uh, an existential threat to the United States and and beyond that to general decency in the world. He was opposed, however, during this period by the uh, the group generally, it, it was a wider movement than this, but the most famous part of the movement were those people called American Firsters. And, uh, and they, they had arguments on their side because then uh, it wasn't, it, it wasn't clear at that time, for example, uh, just how horrible, uh, Hitler's policies toward uh, towards Jews, towards gypsies, towards gays would be, uh, and the the American firsters thought the Germans might be horrible, but it would be equally horrible for the United States to try to get into this war again because we had seen in World War One that we hadn't succeeded in changing European politics. Why would it be any better in World War II? So there was a very, very heated uh, 
uh, set a controversy surrounding American uh, overseas commitments during this period. One of the more interesting uh, controversialists uh, during this period was your friend in Royal Oak, Michigan, Father Charles Coughlin, uh, a Roman Catholic who was known as the radio priest, uh, who did actually support it, Roosevelt initially, but then became a very, very vicious critic of him. And someone who became, I think, sort of unfairly identified with a pro-Hitler stance. But what is interesting, uh, I think, about uh, about Coughlin and about uh, Roman Catholics at this time before and after uh, Coughlin, Coughlin's time is this. Roman Catholics until very recently have been a uh, not a feared, what do I want to say? They haven't been considered proper Americans or true Americans. The United States is a deep, still a deeply Protestant culture. Uh, Joe Biden is only the second American president who was a Roman Catholic. Uh, his predecessor, Jack Kennedy, had a heck of a time in the 1960s convincing people that if he were uh, elected, people were convinced that if he were elected, the Pope would uh, would come up the Potomac River in a in a grand yacht and take over the United States. This is back in the 1930s when uh, the shady nature of Roman Catholics. Uh, was really on a lot of people's minds. And here's here's what's most interesting to me about uh, Roman Catholics and the notion of fascism. What Catholics thought about the United States was that it was far too much an individualistic culture, that you need it to care for the poor and the sick, uh, you, you needed a more corporate uh, sort of government, uh, a government which would look to the communal health of, of, of the general public and not be concerned so much with individuals. That is, to some extent, the Catholics were more social Democrats than the Protestants. And a lot of them, and... Uh, Coughlin is the best example, uh, were sympathetic, not so much to Hitler, but to, to Mussolini and to Mussolini's corporate sense of, a, uh, of an Italian community that had, to, uh, that, that had to operate with the concerns of the poorest uh, and less well-off in mind. So what uh, happens with Coughlin is that he's you find him speaking out in favor of Mussolini and in favor of some sort of communal sense of well-being and he did this on his famous radio show which reached millions of Catholics and some non-Catholics the result is by the late 30s what happens uh 
powers that be, the, 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 certainly the Roosevelt people, don't like him. And what happens? He's called a fascist. Uh, and he's linked at that. And since fascism at this time in Europe is linked to Hitler, he's so soon identified uh, as a Hitlerite. So I'm more sympathetic uh, to Coughlin and to American first people than, than most scholars are. But at the same time, the overriding thing is not, it, at least from my point of view, is not that, but that again, the role of the concept of fascism comes in to stigmatize these people. Uh, again, it shows itself as this powerful way of condemning an opponent. Yeah, and and that situation didn't really change. That is that idea that you know Roosevelt could be a fascist and Charles Coughlin could be a fascist, even though they're on opposite sides of the of the spectrum, until until America's entry into war, and then the the World War World War II kind of stabilizes the meaning of fascism for a while. Um, I mean, I guess this seems obvious, but why don't we talk a little bit about how how the how fascism sort of sort of held still uh, for the war years. Yeah. Well, uh, what what is interesting to me in this uh, phase of the linguistic career of fascism is that uh, with there, well, there are two phases to it. First, uh, fascism, because the United States, when it gets into the war, allies itself at least uh, opportunistically with Stalin's Soviet Union, that the fascists be, uh, become defined as the real evil that both the United States and the Soviet Union are fighting. So you have at once uh, a, 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 as you put it, a stabilization of this negative aura that uh, fascism has. And then as soon as the United States wins the World War II, the Cold War emerges as this further, uh, well, it's in geopolitics, fight for uh, primacy uh, in, in, in world statesmanship between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so that fascism, in a way, declines in... Uh, declines in importance because there is now another enemy, the communists. Uh, so, uh, but one of the things, the first thing that happens, uh, and you can predict this almost, is that while the real, the live fascists, uh, the the ones who defined World War II, Hitler and Mussolini, are gone. For the Americans, you have another really terrible enemy, the Soviet Union. And so what do you do? Uh, how would you how would you describe an enemy to make that enemy the worst the worst kind of uh, group in the world? You pull out fascism and soon uh, the uh, the label fascism is used to designate, the people in the Soviet Union, they are really a, a different kind of brand of fascism. So while the real fascists go out of power, uh, there, there's a new group, which 
was at one point defined in opposition to fascism, now becomes fascist. Uh, and, and so we see another linguistic turn, Tom, in this use of the word where it, where it becomes the opposite of what it was. That is, it was once used to, to describe the great enemies of the Soviet Union, and now the Soviet Union itself gets defined as that kind of entity. Uh, I, I just find and this is, you know, another uh, episode in this, uh, in this evolution of the, the use of the term in which it becomes the most negative s- signifier Americans are capable of dreaming up, Tom. Although we try some other things, right? So uh, in in the second section of the book, uh, specifically in chapter seven, you talk about people trying to make some some distinctions. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the the difference between fascism and what came to be regarded as totalitarianism. Yeah. Well, this uh, this is uh, actually a. Uh, what is for me the least uh, how do I want to say the least significant of the debates about fascism because it uh, it's a debate which is largely within the walls of the academic world and uh, one of the arguments that I make in the book which is actually peripheral to what we've been talking about which, but which I think is nonetheless interesting is that Ever since uh, since the time of uh, of Mussolini in the in the early 1920s, academics have been talking about these things, arguing what is what is really the central cognitive content of fascism, what the what what the definition is, how you analyze it, how you verify it. Uh, and I would say these debates among academics reached their high point uh, in the uh, in the aftermath of World War II, uh, and actually into the the post uh, you know the immediate post war period. That is in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. You have all sorts of academics trying to define uh, various brands of fascism, various uh, subcategories sub of it. And the most important one, I, the most important set of definitions involves around this term totalitarianism, which, uh, which basically tries to argue or does argue that you have uh, one set of uh, of governmental regimes, which can be called, well, I guess, which be called democratic. Their alternative uh, is the totalitarian regime. And the totalitarian regime is one in which, as you can guess from the, the word itself, there is a an attempt for the state to be the, uh, the total, the sum of all loyalties and commitments, leaving no room for the individual, leaving no room for uh, personal freedoms. Uh, everything is absorbed by the state. 
And when you do this, then then you you can make some sense out of the fact that even though the United States was allied to Russia in World War II, both uh, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin all for fall under this uh, the the rubric of totalitarianism as opposed to democracy. Uh, and during the Cold War, uh, this is a very useful tool for American politicians because what they can do in sorting out uh, who their enemies are in this this huge geo geopolitical struggle, what what the Americans can do is is figure out where to put certain regimes. That is, if they really don't like them, if they find they're a threat, they become part of the totalitarian group. And the chief one among this is obviously the Soviet Union, but it also comes to encompass the, the Chinese communists, comes to encompass uh, the North Koreans, for example. Uh, and then you... You, you then try to discriminate between people whom you think are the real baddies, the totalitarians, uh, as opposed to those who might be only autocratic or demagogic, but whom you can still work with. So the uh, while the, the, the notion of fascism, as I put it, declines in significance during this period. Uh, it has a surrogate that is totalitarianism, which is very useful for Americans in fighting the Cold War, Tom. And, and a lot of this discussion about these, about all of these various distinctions are influenced by, uh, initially by European refugees, uh, thinkers who influenced the American discussion of fascism. And there are a variety of different strands from different national origins discussed in your eighth chapter. Um, but is there a general pattern that emerges from all of these different influences in the U.S.? Yes. And this, I uh, actually, you're talking about chapter eight, which is Europeans bring fascism to the United States, which is actually one of the first chapters I wrote because I found it so interesting. Uh, as I pointed out earlier, uh, these the, the guys who were called logical positivists in Europe uh, were very important uh philosophical group, intellectual group, who actually then a lot of whom migrated to the United States during the rise of Hitler. And they were uh, just one of many uh, groups of European intellectuals who came here during the 1930s and who really enriched uh, American intellectual life in an amazing set of ways. Uh, you know, people, a lot of people who claim to be patriots are very proud of the American way and uh, American ideas and uh, things like that. They would be well advised to look at what happened in the 1930s when the, na the notion of what was American was uh, vastly enhanced by all these Europeans. Uh, having said that in their defense, 
what I think is what was interesting to me in writing this book is that when all these people came to the United States, they immediately uh, presumed that they were dealing in part with another fascist country. That is, they had left mainly Germany, although not exclusively. They came to the United States, which opened its arms to them and gave them employment and prestige. And all they could do over and over and over again uh, was to write uh, and think and believe that the United States was really a, a peculiar kind of fascist country. That is, they used their own ideas of what fascism was like, mainly in Germany, uh, and saw the same phenomenon in the United States. And here, and uh, here again. Uh, you see whether they were Germans or whether they were refugees from Europe or native-born Americans, fascism again emerges for for, for these European intellectuals as uh, you know the worst sort of uh, political system one can imagine. And here, these Europeans found it in America. And uh, my best example of that is. Uh, is actually Hannah Arendt, uh, whom I don't like very much, to tell you the truth. And the reason I don't is that uh, in one of her important books, she wrote this basically history of political thought in the United States, in which she said, the founding fathers were the the greatest exemplars of uh, good uh, of uh, of thinkers who talked about good good governance uh, in a in a country. Uh, they and they are, as you know, Franklin, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison uh, are all uh, the founders from the uh, the late. Uh, 18th, early 19th century. But then, according to Hannah Arendt in her history of American politics, things went completely downhill. And she said there were, there, basically, she says there's no, there was no real thinking in the United States for over a, uh, uh, let's say, over 150 years from, let's say, 1800 to 1950. Uh, and when f- people finally do start thinking in a strategic way about politics again, according to Hannah Arendt, they're all fascists. Uh, and uh, this was a, uh, so that there's a Jeremiah of, about fascism for Hannah Arendt, uh, so that when she comes to the United States in the 40s, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, she's facing a fascist America, which she lambastes every uh, every chance she gets when she is being wined and dined in uh, in New York by all sorts of intellectuals and has the American world at her feet, all she can do is condemn the United States for having its peculiar form of fascism, Tom. Yeah, Um so there, there are a lot of different strands to, to pick up in this book. And, and again, I hope that, you know, one of the reasons we do this is to encourage listeners to, to go out and, and find the book and read it for themselves and, and make their own decisions about 
um, about the, the issues that you're raising. Uh, as we come to an end, I want to kind of merge the, the final two chapters together and, and ask a little bit uh, about the relationship between democracy and fascism and, and whether we can have uh, fascism without fascism. Well, uh, I know that's a lot, but no, yeah. How can I do that in thirty seconds? Uh, what the last? No, the, no. You got more time than that. But... Okay. The last chapter. What I do is take democracy uh, as a an equally polarized political word, which has a positive connotation as fascism has a negative one. And what I what I try to do is to examine what fascism originally meant uh, in America or in the early republic. It was not then a positive term. It was not then a, uh, a, a concept that uh, the founding fathers found fruitful. In fact, it was uh it was negative in implication. That is, the, the founding fathers did not like democracy. It favored uh, short-term solutions that were based in passion instead of reason. It, uh, it led to demagoguery and uh, giving the, the voice to, uh, to people who should not have a voice. And if you look at their debates, what they called what they were doing was creating a republic. That is, a, a government which was popular, as they called it, but which was much, much more concerned uh, to limit uh, the uh the the voice of the people you had to give you had to give the people a voice but you had to constrain it in various ways or else it would go in the direction of democracy which was which they considered to be uh, perhaps not an evil but certainly something to be feared and the argument I try to make in the last chapter is that if we if we compare the uh, the way in which in which democracy's career the career of that concept has become gone from negative to positive just as the career of fascism has gone from positive to deeply negative and uh, I close by by, by using this uh phrase fascism without fascism as a kind of ironical way of talking about guess who Donald Trump uh, if you if you I think Trump is is a Democrat uh, a small d Democrat in the sense of, of what the founders made of it that is this is a guy who uh, relies on the, the voices of all sorts of people whom the founders thought should have no voice uh, but that to call him a fascist is to make a serious kind of error because if if fascism you know here think of think of what Hitler's fascism meant. It meant uh, something that was deeply anti-Semitic. Here you have a guy whose son-in-law is a uh, whose beloved son-in-law, 
by the way, uh, is a Jew, and he has, and his wife is converted to Judaism, and he had, and so Trump has a Jewish Jewish daughter and Jewish Jewish grandchildren. How can you? How can you call someone like that a fascist? In addition, if you you think of Hitler's Germany, uh, here was a a culture which had the enormous uh, enormous popular support. You know, ninety percent of the people approved of Hitler. Uh, with Trump, it's maximum of forty five percent. The whole you know the culture is not. Uh, the sort of one that uh, that Hitler would have recognized at all, and I go on and on like that in that vein to suggest the ironies involved in our use of political language. And I ask, and this is the uh, I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, if if you have people who will read the book because of the podcast, and I hope you do, I don't want to force my views on them. What I want them to do is think about these these political issues in a critical way and try to get away from cliches in thinking about them and rather kind of, uh, you know, have a, a you know, just a, a kind of empirical sense of, uh, of trying to figure out uh, what these political terms actually mean and, and what they lead us to do, Tom. Well, again, that is what we're here for. Hopefully uh, someone goes out and is inspired to uh, to take a look at the book. Uh, Bruce Kuklick, uh, thank you once again. I, I, I usually close by asking, although I noted at the beginning that you're a professor emeritus, uh, so what can we expect next? Oh, gee, I'm glad you asked that question. What are you working on? I can sell some books. Uh, I wrote... Uh... <laughs> I, I wrote a little t- a, a single author, short, brief, but actually very interpretive textbook called A Political History of the USA, One Nation Under God. It's in a second edition uh, where I am, as we speak, I am uh, working on a third edition, which will really bring the, uh, the history up to date of uh, it, over the last 20 years and uh it is it is scheduled to come out uh in january of 2025 right after the 2024 election and uh i tell people to uh, to make a note or you know uh put it on their list because uh i really enjoy working on this it's highly interpretive but it's uh very seriously researched i've got a lot of people uh helping me out with ideas and suggestions um but that's what's next on my agenda terrific uh bruce cooklick thank you once again for your time and, and for your work on this topic thank you very much for having me really appreciate it So once again, my guest today has been Bruce Kuklick, the author of Fascism Comes to America, A Century of Obsession in Politics and Culture, out from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.